shining a light on the issue of domestic violence. The United Nations study out this week finds domestic violence is one of the most common killers of women around the world. Fears are growing at domestic violence shelters. Domestic violence experts in our top story. Well, the domestic violence situation quickly turned into an assault. The federal government calls it a pervasive problem that frequently goes undetected. We're talking about the courage that it takes to come forward as a victim. Hey, Central Oregon. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Community Voices, where we get to learn from our friends and partners right here in the community. If you're interested in being part of a conversation like this, go to saving-grace.org interview and fill out the form. It'll come directly to me uh, and we'll uh, be in touch. Um, so before we jump into episode four with Janice Garceau, who is a director of a local behavioral health agency, um, we want to thank one of our sponsors like we always do, and that is Avion Water. Since making its first water delivery to Southeast Bend over 50 years ago, Avion Water has grown to include over 14,000 customers in Deschutes and Crook Counties. Avion is still locally owned, and they're proud to provide delicious, untreated drinking water to their customers. They test their water purity 30 times a month, and it shows. I never drank out of the tap before moving to Bend. And now I do, and it's amazing. I have no reservations about just turning on the faucet and having something to drink. So thank you, Avion Water. If you are a customer and need to pay your water bill, you can do it on their website, avionwater.com, or just learn more about them at your leisure, avionwater.com. Thank you so much, Avion Water, for supporting Saving Grace and Survivors. So Janice Garceau, here's her bio. I'm just going to read it in its entirety to tee up a really great conversation. Janice Garceau is a licensed clinical social worker with 30 years of experience as a behavioral health clinician in a variety of community settings. Janice has specific experience and expertise with forensic and court-mandated populations, community mental health, family and intimate partner violence, domestic relations mediation and child custody evaluation, clinical supervision, and program design and implementation. Now you understand why she's on this episode, and I'm not even done. Janice has provided training on a variety of topics to professionals in the community, including clinical supervision, mediation in cases involving domestic violence, appropriate parenting time arrangements for very young children, professional resilience, clinical supervision, and other subjects. So without further ado, Janice Garceau, thanks for joining Janice. us. Hi. Hi. I just read your bio, um, so everyone is familiar with your, your background, so why don't we just jump right in you obviously have a a wealth of experience um and in in various aspects that pertain to you know saving grace's mission what we do um and so i was i was first curious about you talking about domestic violence post separation and if you could really paint a picture of what that looks like so i think um my my experience is that people are often very impatient with um, women, mostly, but but also sometimes men who are living in relationships where there's violence. And there's this belief um, that's broadly shared that if the person would just leave, um, the, the problem would end. And what I've learned over 30 years of experience, uh, both direct practice experience and also the literature, is that violence doesn't end at the end of the relationship. And that in fact, the period of time where a person is considering leaving a violent partner is maybe one of the most risky times. Um, often, uh, even a year or two after separation, 
there is continued escalation of violence, sometimes resulting in really terrible outcomes like um, the killing of the partner. So I think this is a um, real problem often, and I'm, I'm going to use the term women because the vast majority of people experiencing the kind of domestic violence that we're talking about is women. Um, there are exceptions, but um, those exceptions probably prove the rule. So I think what women often encounter is this cultural frustration um, with staying in a relationship where there's violence and there's a real lack of understanding of the kinds of intimidation, harassment, and coercive control that can happen as a woman is trying to leave, or in fact, after she leaves, sometimes for years after she leaves. Um, so uh, what that looks like, uh, in my experience, is, is uh, often an escalating attempt to regain control in the relationship. So threats and intimidation, gaslighting, um, stalking online, stalking in person, uh, harassing family members, um, all can occur after the fact as the person who's been abusive in the relationship um, really begins to this escalating pattern of trying to regain control because that's what um, coercive control motivated domestic violence is really about. Yeah. And can you provide any examples of coercion? It's not a, a very common word in our daily vocabulary. Well, uh, any time that uh, a person has used the threat of violence to gain dominance in a relationship, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about coercion. So I think that really relates to another um, myth that uh, I often saw play out in particular post-separation and in post-separation legal proceedings. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that says when couples separate, there's often some, they use the term domestic violence. Um, and sure, there are couples who separate and there may have been pushing and shoving and slapping and really unpleasant things that have happened in the course of this escalating period of conflict. Um, but coercive control and coercion is really a different dynamic. And that involves uh, someone who have may, may only have hit their partner one time or threatened them with a weapon or threatened them with violence once or twice. But if that threat is believed and the other person feels fear for their safety or welfare or their children's, um, coercion becomes a factor in the relationship. So I'm not going to express how I feel about your behavior. I'm not going to um, attempt independence. I'm not going to do anything that um, brings me back into contact with this threat of violence to myself or people I love. That's and coercion. It, right. And it's also even for the abusive partner to, to threaten their own safety. So to um, yes. threaten suicide. Yes. Or um, I'm trying to think of other examples, but that way of putting, okay, if I do this, he's going to do that. And then that's on me, even though it's not. Yes. But yeah. you, or um, do you really want our kids growing up in a broken home? No, I'll stay. I'll tough it out. Yeah. Yeah. So that also applies. Absolutely. And I saw that play out over and over again. Threats to pets harm to pets, threats to children, harm to children, threats to precious belongings, things that um, the person holds dear, a keepsake from a deceased relative, um, 
their their hobbies or uh, artwork or you name it. Um, mm. It's the presence of threat that yeah. really distinguishes classic DV, I think, from um, the kind of mutual violence that can happen on occasion during separation. Yeah, and so you've 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 got that lived experience of because it's not just the stats that that tell us that leaving that separation period it can be the most dangerous, but you have seen that play out. Yeah, I've seen it play out. I worked 10 years um, in a clinic where we provided uh, behavioral health services to people encountering domestic violence, among other forms of family violence. And I saw it play out uh, in some really um, distressing and tragic ways. And then, of course, working with people in mediation and contested custody cases as a custody evaluator and later in a supervised visitation program, um, while I saw many, many wonderful examples of collaborative couples sorting out their differences, I also saw a lot of evidence of how coercive control and domestic violence plays out when people are separating. Gotcha. Yeah. So why don't we, um, you mentioned before we, we started recording about your child custody experience, course of control we just covered, but you talked about a double bind that the surviving partner goes through. Can you, can you share what that looks like? It's really profound. Um, it is a really intense um, double bind that I think mothers experience in particular. So if I am a woman with children and I have an abusive partner uh, and I'm staying with that partner, I will be judged um, by the culture and also sometimes by our systems that are designed to protect children for not protecting my children. So uh, the system sort of holds that protective parent accountable at a very uh, intense level for the safety of those children, sometimes in a situation where that survivor of domestic violence has very few options for actually effectively keeping their children safe. The moment she leaves with those children, she enters a different paradigm, and that is the domestic relations court paradigm. And that court is really intended to look out for the best interests of children and assumes often that a relationship with both parents is the best thing for a child, understandably. That, that would be the normative assumption. Um, and that any parent who is not taking steps to facilitate that relationship is a problem. So literally in a matter of weeks, a mother may have moved from a system that was punitively responding to her for not protecting her children into a system that will interpret her protective behaviors as gatekeeping and creating barriers for the other parent. And I watched that play out over and over and over and over again with really, really negative consequences for um, women and for children who end up uh, entering a completely different paradigm when they leave the relationship and attempt to establish um, a protective legal relationship with their ex around the needs of the children. Sounds awful. It is awful. Uh, it was uh, it was really difficult to witness, and I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that situation. 
I don't mean, I don't even know what questions to ask around that. It, it feels so complicated and deep. It's like a swamp and quicksand uh, and rocky, you know, terrain all at the same time. Yes. What, what, how can you, what, what advice can you provide someone who's, who's going to navigate that road? Well, bef- before advice, let me just deepen the complexity. Um, oh boy. Oh boy. So the other thing that I think happens is that, um, uh, and again, everyone in this scenario, judges and lawyers and advocates, their intentions are all really positive, right? Nobody's trying to make this harder. But uh, the other complexity here is that when families go through separation and divorce, uh, and when parents are in a domestic violence relationship, what we know is that their parenting often um, is not as good as it would be in ideal circumstances. And so the other dynamic is that you may have um, a domestic violence survivor who's now an impaired parent, um, who may be quite depressed, who may have trauma symptoms, who may have poor boundaries with her children because she sees them as um, co-survivors, um, who may in fact have um, developed a substance use disorder um, as part of managing the relationship um, or just not be a perfect parent. And um, that's another dynamic that plays out in the courts is that flawed parenting then is also uh, a tool that's used in the fight in the court system against that parent. And that flawed parenting may to some degree, be a result of the years of abuse that the person has been subject to. So it's another layer of complexity there. We all want perfect victims who are easy to empathize with. That's not who gets victimized. Um, It's just regular people, good parents, not great parents. Um, And that really adds to, I think, difficult decisions that courts have to make. I think it just further complicates a custody situation. And I think the more we learn, we, you know, our, just our uh, society learns about trauma and its impact yeah. on the body and the mind and how long it, it lives with an individual and how it doesn't make sense and how the, the outside elevated perspective that one person could have makes, you know, like, well, of course you should have done this. Well, of course you should do that. Well, of course right. the, the answer is obvious, but Trauma is like a, a firewall, like a barrier to seeing things clearly, or um, in some ways, an, an inability to do what you, even you know you should do. But there's some sort of block that, that is prohibitive in a way. Yeah. And I could see how the abusive partner could use that um, in, from a legal standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I also think that people forget. A couple of important things. One is that people don't choose abusive relationships. They choose partners. And then there's this period of becoming aware that your partner, who you love, is not a safe person. And that is an awareness that takes some time to really land because what's normal and healthy is to love and forgive and uh, dig in again and keep trying. And so we're really asking people to work against their nature, um, our, our very human desire to be connected and forgive and extend grace to the people we love. Um, and often then sitting in a place of judgment when people have done what we would expect them to do uh, in a normal situation, right? 
And the trauma really result, results out of that dynamic as well as the exposure to violence, that betrayal, that loss of trust, that loss of self-efficacy, um, that um, period of dawning realization that you have allowed yourself to be subject to this kind of treatment um, is part of the trauma. And it can make it very difficult for that person to move forward. So yeah, it's, it's all in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not simple. Yeah. Not so cut and dry. No. Um, and, and speaking of which you, you mentioned it briefly, but um, since it's not so cut and dry, you, part of your background has been domestic relations mediation, as you mm-hmm. said it. And mm-hmm. there's a domestic court uh, relations uh, uh, component in there. I don't know if I'm mixing up worlds, but can you describe what that looks like, the mediation to help make it a little simpler? Yeah. So uh, domestic relations is sort of an area of law that that is around these issues of custody, parenting time, divorce, separation. And domestic relations mediation, typically in Oregon at least, refers to um, negotiating with a neutral third party your custody arrangements, parenting time, and in some instances, your financial uh, arrangements as well. Not, not all public programs offer that, but a lot of private mediators do. Um, So mediation is a lovely tool. Um, It is a way to allow people to sort out really difficult decisions about children uh, outside of courtrooms. Um, The intention behind it is based on the notion, which is accurate, that courts are not the best places to um, make a decision about kids and their welfare. Um, And for many, many, many people, mediation is a wonderful thing and works really well. Um, But it is based on the notion that you have two individuals who have some capacity to be collaborative and to work in the best interest, not just of themselves, but of their children. So one of the phenomenon that I observed over 12 years of doing mediation is that when domestic violence is part of the picture, you don't actually have a collaborative relationship. You have a coercive relationship. And the dynamics of that are profoundly different. So collaboration requires that both people are able to believe that the other person has some basic rights. Um, Both people are able to believe that um, arriving at a decision that is somewhere in between what I want and what you want uh, has value. Um, and there's some ability to imagine that the other person's perspective has validity. And you don't have that in domestic violence scenarios. You have a person who truly believes, I mean, the only way to use threat of violence to gain control is to have a deep belief that what you want and what you need is of primary importance in the relationship and that it justifies use of force to get it. That's, that's the underlying uh, belief system that results in violent and aggressive behavior. So that's not a, that's not a collaborative approach. So mediation in those cases is very, very tricky. And a lot of, um, People in domestic violence relationships, as they're separating, get sent to mediation, and uh, 
they feel incredibly um, disempowered in that process. There are some ways to fix that or address that, but it requires a mediator that understands A, can identify, and B, can um, account for domestic violence in the mediation process. So the other thing that works against collaboration is fear, right? If I'm the um, person who experienced the threat of violence or actual violence, uh, my ability to imagine that I'm on an equal playing field and can speak to my own needs or my own wishes or my own thoughts about what my children need is really compromised because um, I might pay for that outside of the mediation. And, and when I say pay for it, I'm not talking about um, some angry emails. I'm talking about physical harm, uh, danger, harassment, stalking, threats of harm to kids. Yeah. 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 And, and it does, you know, there's like the, maybe the 60 minutes, I don't even know if that's a show anymore, but you know, there's like the 60 minute special, you know, one, maybe once a year that highlights that type of um, tragic outcome of, of a DV homicide of someone who mm -hmm. said like, he's going to hurt me. I'm scared. You know, they, they do all the things and then, you know, the, a broken system in some ways. And so, you know, the most tragic thing happens. I mean, I remember that was part of, of my onboarding and my training was watching one of those stories of this woman yeah. who did everything she could yep. and, and lost her life at the hands of her, you know, ex. Um, so it, it is a very real thing. Um, and, you know, um, there's that new book that I've referenced on here before, No Visible Bruises, and mm -hmm. the the increase um, across our country of um, what's it called familiacide, is that right? Femicide. Oh femicide. well, familiacide. Well, familiacide too, because what has begun to be more of a phenomenon is um, people not just killing their ex, but also killing their children. Yeah, and, and I, you know, maybe in the <laughs> in the I'll cut into this recording and, and read out the the stats, but it's a, it's alarming. It's quite um, alarming. Okay, quick cut in. I think it is important to read these stats. So I went ahead and looked them up in No Visible Bruises. And this is what the author says. The first known annihilation or familiacide uh, event of a, um, an intimate partner killing their intimate partner and at least one child. First known case can be traced back to the mid 18th century. Over the next two centuries, such cases averaged three per decade. So that's not, that's not high. Then in the 1990s, there were 36 between 2000 and 2007, there were 60. And from 2008 to 2013, in research done by the Family Violence, Violence Institute, there were 163 cases that claimed a total of 435 victims. From the time of the 2008 uh, economic crash, we began averaging um, around three a month. Three a month. In other words, while nearly all forms of homicide steadily declined over the past several decades in the U.S., familicide appears to be on the rise. Now back to the interview. It's not, there's no way to skew the numbers. There's no agenda. It's just, mm -hmm. is, you know, what is the number of individuals who have committed this atrocity? Mm -hmm. it, it's just a cut and dry number. Yeah. And so I, I clearly value there's value in the mediation. I'm sure you said you have worked with couples who really were wanting to work it out in a, in a cordial way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And, you know, I spoke with Justin Bendel from probation last week um, for this and, 
he was talking about how there are individuals who maybe it was one time that they made a, a really bad mistake and they, they want to, they'll do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to get back on track for their kids or whatever. Um, and there was a question in there. Um, well, I did, I did see that in mediation. I did. I mean, I had, I have to say it was the minority of cases, but I did see, um, I did mediate with people where there had been pretty significant domestic violence. The offender had been, um, a held accountable that made a difference. Um, so there'd been a weekend in jail or, uh, some legal findings or some actual charges that landed and stuck. Mm. Um, that made a real difference. And they had been engaged in pretty um, lengthy domestic violence offender uh, services. And I had at least a couple of cases where the offender took real responsibility for the impact that that behavior had had on the partner and on the children and worked very hard in mediation to develop a safety-focused parenting time plan that allowed sort of stepped-up contact and time with kids based on um, not just completing services, uh, but on actual evidence of changed behavior. And this is a really critical point in contested custody cases. Unlike the dependency court where you can have several hearings occur over time as you're watching a family work through the recommendations that have been made to create safety for children. So dependency court is when there's been a child abuse finding or a child neglect finding. In a custody case, often there's kind of a final finding, right? It's a more finite expectation. You go to court, you may have a pretrial hearing, uh, and then you have your trial and custody is established, parenting time is established, and there isn't really a way to check back in on how things are going. And this can work against families who really do need to work towards behavior change. Um, So it's just a complexity in the law that's difficult to deal with. I'm I'm sure that judges and lawyers sometimes really struggle with, wow, you know, I've, I've landed here in this custody case but I know that things may change over time or I know that there may be issues to address. And in the domestic relations arena, you have to actually refile a case um, for modification or a change in order to get those things back in front of the court. Right. So it's just, a, it's a, it's a complexity in the legal approach to divorce and, and um, separation that uh, for these kinds of situations can create um, a difficult scenario for, for families. Yeah. So you ask about advice. Yes. What advice do you have? Um, I got two more wrap-up questions since I know it's okay. short today. Okay. Uh, my advice always is that um, domestic violence uh, women women or men who are experiencing domestic violence should reach out to law enforcement and make reports um, because you may need that. Uh, documented evidence that abuse was occurring down the road uh, when you go to court. That's just a practical reality. That said, there are times when reaching out to law enforcement might endanger someone's life, and I trust uh, survivors to make the best decision they can in that situation. So that's another double bind. Um, I think that the domestic violence advocacy community some would really benefit from educating themselves about this difference between how the legal system sees DV when families are intact 
and how the legal system sees custody arrangements in DV when separation occurs. I have seen many clients uh, who came in and said, well, my advocate told me no judge will give him parenting time. And let me tell you, that is not true. Um, The pressure that judges are under, whether by cultural pressure or or just the the way the law is structured to grant parenting time and not take it away from a parent is really significant. And it is very difficult for a judge to make the call that a child should not see a biological parent. So I really would like to see the domestic violence advocacy community, you know, sort of understand better the system that many of their um, their uh, service population is moving into when they separate and divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that um, anyone who's in a domestic violence situation and is separating um, looks at materials related to safety-focused parenting time plans. There's a lot of good resources there around how to structure a parenting time plan so that you can facilitate a relationship while taking into account safety. Mm-hmm. I hope that they ask their mediator and their lawyer about whether or not they have domestic violence training and experience and whether or not they know how to account for it mm, in good. legal proceedings. So um, they they should ask about that. Um, any mediator should be screening for DV. Uh, many mediations in the community happen in settings where safety cannot be guaranteed. And um, it may be an opportunity for an offender to have direct contact with the victim when they haven't had it otherwise. So they should ask about how domestic violence is screened and also how safety is ensured in mediation or other kinds of legal proceedings. That's good. And then the last thing is they should always um, talk with their advocates, their attorney, their mediator about the presence of of firearms. We know that the risk for um, death is much higher when uh, firearms are present. And they should make themselves acquainted with the laws around um, temporary removal of firearms when there's a a Family Violence Protection Act um, or Family Abuse, sorry, FAPA, Family Abuse Protection Act restraining order in place. There are some protections in Oregon law for people who are concerned about guns. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. And I, um, I mean, shameless plug, you know, Mary's place is unique to Mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest at this point. Um, that's our, our supervised visit safe exchange center, which, you know, I'm saying that for everyone else. And I, I'm continually impressed by the resource that that is. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason, cause some of what you're describing, you, you know, a judge would be hard pressed in some cases, either based on the law or culture, as you said, to withhold visitation. Right. Right. So Mary's place is a great option then to, to not withhold, but to, to provide that to the offending parent in, in a safe way. And, and just, just the lens that you put on that, you know, I just feel like I'm, I'm even greater of a fan than I was 10 minutes ago of Mary's yeah. place. Just real proud that that's available. Yeah. And one really key piece about the development of these safety focused kinds of plans is it's very difficult to do, but it's very important that the plans are based on behavior change, not compliance with 
number of visits or completion of a program. Um, domestic violence offenders are unique in that they are often very well behaved uh, in most settings and they can complete a compliance expectation no problem. It does yeah. not mean you're safer. So the, the parenting plan should be focused on behavior change. And the only person who really knows the behaviors that indicate risk is the survivor. So any lawyer or mediator who is working with a domestic violence survivor around constructing these parenting plans should really be diving deep into what are the behaviors that indicate that risk is decreasing or increasing and make parenting time contingent on that. That's my husband yeah. talking to the dog. Sorry. No, it's okay. I know I kicked my pets out right before this. Um, and so it's, it's interesting because you, you say behavior. Last week, mm -hmm. Justin from probation said behavior. He's talking about behavior. But you don't really mm -hmm. mean behavior like, oh, they're kind now. He's, he's so nice now. It's not like mm -hmm. a change of like your demeanor. It's, it's, the, it's the change of understanding the impact of how you operated in that context, it's, it's like the, the deep understanding and empathy of like, I never saw it. I, I now see myself, my, my former self, how I thought, how I acted, how I treated you, how I justified it. That's the, the change that we're looking for, right? It's the, it's the deeper root stuff, not the outward. It's You're, both. He's, he's now jovial. We're getting yeah, back together. Well, it's both, because I, I have to tell you, and this may sound ironic for a behavioral health professional to say, but I'm not a huge believer that insight equals change. Um, mm. I'm a huge believer in show me. Show me that your actions are different. Um, that's where real change manifests. So I worked with a lot of DV offenders who cried and um, expressed great remorse for the, for the uh, harm they had caused and continued to engage in behaviors that were threatening and intimidating and disturbing to the survivor. So again, for me, uh, sure, is evidence of some empathy and understanding of the impact of the, the violence on your family important? It's important, but show me the money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's where I stand. Yeah, show me that you have changed and these actions that are terrifying and demeaning no longer occur. So examples of that, survivors can give you, they can give you the whole list of things that tell them they're in trouble. And I'll give you an example to just show you how subtle this is. Um, we, I'm just trying to think of how to talk about this without disclosing too much information. Um, mm. I'll change a few details. There was a domestic violence situation, three kids, uh, supervised visitation program, the partner, um, the abuser in this situation was very focused on child nutrition and um, the domestic violence often occurred around um, uh, disciplining the mother for not properly feeding the children um, around these very, very rigid notions of what the children should be eating. So it became this coercive control dynamic. The person would interview their children about what they were eating uh, during supervised visits. And it wasn't until the survivor shared with us how that actually played out in the relationship 
that we were able to understand that that behavior was actually part of the domestic violence dynamic. And so that's what I'm talking about. Survivors can tell you the behaviors that will indicate that the dynamic is still occurring and that risk is still present. And it's those kinds of subtle, coercive, controlling tactics that you need to target for change in order to have a progressive parenting plan that actually ensures safety of children and, and the, um, the survivor. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, a lot of that, some of that for the you know, offending abusive partner is uh, getting help for their own trauma, perhaps, right? right? Like it's not just a matter of a class or, or flipping a switch. They're acting out of, you know, perhaps their own trauma, right. which I think is a new, new-ish perspective to, to have into account, um, that that's not cut and dry either. Right. 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 So what, since we're at a, about our, our time limit, I would love to hear okay. your, your why. why. Why did you choose this field or you could skip to the current and why, are you, why, are you, why do you still do what you do? Um, you know, I didn't necessarily choose to work in family violence. I landed early in my career in a job working in a family violence clinic. And, um, and then I found that work to be incredibly compelling. And I think just for me personally, working on real problems um, that have real visible impacts on people was a really powerful way to use my skills. Um, I tend to be practical. Uh, I'm probably not the most woo-woo of therapists out there. So I, uh, I really uh, like practical solutions that help people navigate tricky problems. So that really made uh, mediation and custody evaluation appealing to me um, because it's a very practical intervention. And when done right, even in a domestic violence situation, can really help um, both a survivor and an abuser uh, work their way into a uh, co-parenting relationship that has safety embedded within it and allows for relationships with kids. So, nice, great answer. Yeah. Practical intervention. Anything else you want to leave viewers, listeners with? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I. Just trying to think of how to say this. What I observed in mediation in particular is that so many dads um, are well behaved, loving. Uh, they, maybe there have been missteps and bad behavior during divorce and separation. That kind of comes with the territory. But I saw overwhelming evidence that most dads and moms are well-intentioned and trying to do the best thing for their children. I see evidence in our culture that most males are uh, my partner, my husband, my brothers, uh, my male colleagues uh, are wonderful, well-behaved, nonviolent individuals. And I really, um, it's really concerning to me that so much of this kind of violence is excused. And I really saw that play out in domestic relations court. Um, uh, moms were held to a much higher account, frankly, for their parenting behavior than dads. And I, I actually think that's a disservice to all the dads out there doing the right thing um, because there are many of them. And uh, 
I really wish that we expected more because we can. We can expect more uh, from male parents. Most of them are doing a great job and doing the right thing. And I'd like to see a culture shift that says this behavior is aberrant, it's unacceptable, and you're not going to get to engage in it. So that may be a philosophical um, divergence from the subject, but it's something I've thought about a lot lately. No, I, I think it's a great tee up for a part two with you. This is what I think. Oh, I'll do this okay. again. Yeah. Janice, right. thank you so much. Yeah. I'm going to uh, stop record. Stop recording. Um, thanks again. Yeah. Learn more about us at saving-grace.org. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.